uh, welcome. It is good to be with you this morning uh, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Um, He is raised. He is risen. The tomb could not contain him. Hallelujah. What a wonderful, wonderful, glorious promise and hope that that is, that Christ is risen, that the tomb is empty. That is why we gather, not just this morning, but that is why we gather as God's people every week. That is why we call on his name, because he has defeated death, hell, and the grave. He has taken our sin upon himself, and he has risen in glory. That is a wonderful truth. And so we get to celebrate that. We get to hear of that in this word this morning from Matthew 28. So if you do have a Bible, please turn with me there. You can find the passage printed in your order of service, Matthew 28. This is God's word. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always." To the end of the age. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts, allow the truth and the glory and the wonder of your word to penetrate us, that we would walk with you and follow you. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing to you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we know that there are certain events, there are certain situations and circumstances that stick with us, that we hold dear in our hearts, things that we remember as we go about our lives. I'm not talking about those recurring events, those things that happen year after year. I'm not talking about birthdays and anniversaries, as wonderful as some of those are. I'm talking about those monumental events, those events that actually ripple through 
generation to generation and affect us and change us. They even change the culture in the world. Think of Gutenberg's printing press or Edison's light bulb, right? These sorts of things that, that change the very nature of, of what we know about the world. I can tell you about events that have shaped me and affected me. I can tell you exactly where I was the morning of September 11th, 2001, right? I was sitting in El, uh, Emerald High School, ninth grade history class, not because I was a ninth grader, I'm, I'm not that young, uh, but because I was teaching in the ninth grade history class. I was student teaching that semester. And I remember I was in ninth grade world history class, and I was sitting at the front on the stool, and we were watching on the television in the upper right-hand corner of the classroom, every eye fixated and transfixed on that television as we watched together the second plane fly into the second tower. And I can tell you about later in the day, sitting with the 11th grade history class and, and talking to those students about justice and vengeance, talking to them about what is the right response and, and what, how this was going to change the world in which we knew. I could tell you about the look of fear in their eyes and the, the emotion of anger in their voices as they spoke. I know some of you can share those sorts of stories as well. Generations that have come before, can, I've heard them say that they remember exactly where they were when they heard that Kennedy was shot. Right? These sorts of events, they, they affect us. They change what we know about ourselves and about the world. They affect us, right? 9-11, Kennedy, D-Day and Pearl Harbor, King's I Have a Dream speech, right? They ripple from one generation to the next, and they change everything that we know about our world. And as significant and as monumental as those events have been, there is one event that ripples not just from one generation to another, but that actually ripples throughout all of eternity, Right at the center of human history is the person and work of Jesus. This one who was born, and he lived, and he died. And if the story ended right there, then we wouldn't even be talking about him this morning. He would perhaps be forgotten in the annals of history. Maybe he'd simply be remembered as a, as a moral teacher, as a good man. But we wouldn't be celebrating him. We wouldn't be worshiping him because the story doesn't end with his death. It actually ends three days later with him rising triumphantly over the grave. And that has changed the world. That one event, the tomb being empty, Jesus rising from the dead, it echoes into eternity and changes everything that we know about the world. It changes everything that we know about ourselves. It affects us. It changes what we know about death. It's the first thing I want us to see about the resurrection, that it changes what we know about death. Now, we know that what we do know about death is that can't be defeated, right? Every one of us is going to succumb to it. How does that phrase go? Uh, there are two certainties in life, taxes and death, right? Every single one of us is going to be confronted by it. And as much as we want to stave it off, we want to try and prolong our life as much as we can, right? We eat well, we exercise. There are even those who cryogenically freeze themselves, like Ted Williams, in the hope that one day he will be brought back to life. Right? This, this 
this thought that we could live forever. This is something that has played out in literature and movies, right? Drink this elixir and you'll have eternal life. Find the right chalice, Indiana Jones, and, and you will stave off death. Or even Harry Potter, right? The Deathly Hallows kids. You remember the Elder Wand, the possessor of the Elder Wand, the most powerful wand ever created, and the resurrection stone, the stone that miraculously brings people back from the dead. And the one who has the cloak, the invisibility cloak, that all of these things together will help to have eternal life. But, but even as powerful as the elder wand is, and miraculous as the resurrection stone, and as great as the invisibility cloak, what happens? Death is, life is prolonged, but every one of them succumb again and again to death. Because death cannot be thwarted. That's what we know about death. It cannot be defeated until now. Jesus' resurrection changes what we know about death because in his resurrection, death is defeated. Look at verse 5. The angels say to the women, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. You hear the angel, there's no body. I, I can imagine the angel sitting on the stone, which is just a humorous image in my mind. Maybe his, his feet are swinging, you know, like a child who can't hit the floor with his feet. I, I can just imagine the joy that he is saying as he looks at them and says, he is risen. Don't take my word for it. Look in the, look in the tomb. There's no one there. He's defeated death. Look for yourself. Christ was too powerful for the grave to contain him. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. In his Pentecost sermon, he says that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is remarkable. As powerful as death is, it was not possible for the grave and for death to rule over Christ because the power of God is more powerful than even death itself. And so Christ defeats death. And he does it by a resurrection that is bodily. You see, Jesus isn't just simply floating around like this disembodied spirit. He actually has flesh and bone. What happens after the women see that the tomb is empty? Well, they obey the angel. They start running to go tell the disciples. And they come and, <clears throat> excuse me, they come and they find Jesus along the way. And what do they do? They, they find him and they fall before him. Excuse me. <clears throat> they fall before him and they go reaching out forward. <clears throat> excuse me. And I can imagine what they were thinking for not the emotion of the circumstance and the situation. They go reaching for his feet, and I could imagine they're thinking they're just going to go, kind of like trying to grasp hold of air or smoke, right? Maybe he's a ghost. But that's not what happens. They reach out and they take hold of him, right? What happens in verse 9? Jesus is standing before him, and he says, greetings. Okay, hold on. Just one second. This is not meant to be irreverent at all. But really, that's it? <laughs> he was dead, and now he's alive, and all he says is greetings. As though this was just, you know, it just happens every day. This isn't a big deal. It's so nonchalant, right? Oh, pff, resurrection. <laughs> I can do that any day of the week, right? Anyway, okay, let's go on. 
So, <clears throat> greetings. And they fall down before him, and they reach out, and they take hold of him. And instead of finding vapor or wisps of smoke or some ghostly disembodied spirit, what they take hold of is muscle and bone and tendon and flesh because Christ's body was resurrected. His actual body was resurrected. Now listen, this has many, many implications for us. This has implications about what it means for our bodies, how we are to view our bodies, the value of flesh and physicality in God's world, in the way in which he has created things. It, it has implications for the fact that Jesus is actually in heaven right now with flesh. He's the only flesh in heaven right now, right? And he will have this flesh for all of eternity. It has implications because that means we are going to have a bodily resurrection. We're going to share in it and have body, muscles, and flesh, and tendons, and blood, and veins, and all those sorts of things in a glorified state into the future. It has all these sorts of implications, but for now, those are other sermons. For now, for now, what we need to see is that this resurrection was real, that Christ's body was in fact raised from the dead. He could be touched. Remember, Thomas put his fingers in Jesus' side. And he touched the place where the nails pierced his wrists. Jesus, this body he could eat. Remember, as the disciples were coming out of the water, there was a fire on the side of the lake that Jesus had prepared. And there he ate fish with them. He could eat. He could be touched. He could be grasped. The dead is now alive. Now, I realize that there may be some of you here this morning who are sitting there thinking a bodily resurrection. I mean, that just sounds fantastical. That sounds like Harry Potter, not history. And there are many people who have tried to, uh, tried to put aside the claim of Jesus' resurrection as simply a way of saying, well, well Jesus kind of resurrects in our hearts, right? He kind of lives in our hearts, and so that's what it means that Jesus lives. And others have tried to dismiss it by saying it was just a hoax fabricated by the disciples, right? They're just making this power play. They're going to create this movement in which they can dictate the courses of this group of people. But I want you to notice a couple things about our passage that help us to see the historical viability of the resurrection, I want you to notice who was there and who wasn't there. So who was there? Well, women were. They're the ones who discovered the empty tomb. Now, in our culture, that's not a big deal. But in this culture, that is a huge deal. Because in this culture, women could not give eyewitness testimony for an event. So it didn't matter if there were two women or 22 women or 202 women who were all saying the same thing. It could just be dismissed. It could be erased. And so the fact that women discovered the empty tomb actually points to the historical reliability of the resurrection. Why would they write it this way if it were not so? But then also notice who isn't there. Well, it's the disciples. You notice they are glaringly absent. If they were trying to make a power play and make themselves look good, like if I'm Peter, 
And I really want to make myself look good. I want to be the next leader of the church. I want to make sure that everybody's going to follow me. Well, one, I'm not going to let anybody write about my denial, right? Especially to some little girl, <laughs> right? I'm afraid to acknowledge Jesus to a little girl. I don't want that going in, into the scriptures for all of time, right? And if I'm trying to make a power play, I'm going to make sure that I'm written as the one who discovers the empty tomb. And I'm not surprised by it because, well, of course I knew Jesus would rise again, right? I would paint myself in glorious light. But they're not there. These ones who had denied Christ, who had left him, they're not the ones who find the empty tomb. They have to trust the testimony of women. All of these things point to the fact that, that the only reason you would write these words is because it actually happened this way. That the tomb was empty. That the women are the ones who discovered it. That they are the ones to go and proclaim that Christ the Lord is risen. It's not a power play. It's historical fact. Christ has bodily been raised, and in his resurrection, he has defeated death. It changes what we know about death, but it also changes what we know about life. And what I mean by this is it, it changes how we are to live. And the way in which we are to live is that we are to have lives of courage. Lives of courage. Look what happens to the soldiers. The, the earthquakes, the angel rolls back the stone, and in verse 4, we're told that the guards, the soldiers, they trembled with fear. Now, that word tremble, it's the verbal form of the noun that is used for earthquake. And so the, just as the earth trembled under the weight of the angel coming. That is what the soldiers do. They tremble with fear at seeing this angel. These men, these soldiers, they were trained for battle. They'd been trained not to fear, but to face with resolve terrifying occasions. And yet they shook and became like dead men. Now, I don't know what it means that they became like dead men. Maybe they fainted. Maybe they just froze in fear. Maybe they couldn't move. But they feared. They were afraid. And so too did the women. But hear what the women hear from the angel, this word of assurance in verse 5. The angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Do not fear. The soldiers aren't given that assurance. You see, those who oppose Christ, they should fear. But those who are trusting in him, his resurrection dispels our fears. We can have courage because he has risen from the dead. The women, they're told not to fear, and they leave. They go running, but they still have fear, right? We hear that. They go running. They're full of fear and great joy. Now, I imagine that this is kind of that mingling feeling that a father has with the birth of his first child, right? There's joy. There's celebration. There's excitement, right? I made this thing, right? But then there's all, also the, oh, boy, <laughs> I wish I had another five years of preparation for this, right? That, that sense of joy and celebration, but also worry, right? I brought this into the world, but, but I could mess it up. 
that joy and fear intermix, I, I can imagine that that's what they're experiencing. But what I love is they don't let the fear stop them from obeying. But they do exactly what the angel said that they should do. So though they have this tinge of fear, they keep running and they keep moving. And when they are met with Christ, what do they hear? A word of assurance again. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You see, friends, God's people are not to fear. We are to have courage because Christ has risen. We are to have courage. And there's three reasons why we can have courage. We hear them in Jesus' own words. He says, go tell my brothers. Now think about that for a second. If you're one of the disciples, if you hear news that Jesus is resurrected, I can imagine that what's running through their minds, perhaps, is the last time I saw him, I was fleeing. What might he say? What might he do? But what does Jesus say? Not go tell those scoundrels who denounce me. Not go tell those deniers. Not go tell those deserters. Go tell my brothers. That for those who are trusting in Christ and his resurrection, we are part of his family. That we are no longer rebels, but we are his brothers. We are no longer enemies, but you are his sisters. That we are part of the family of God. And so there is no fear for those whom Christ calls brothers. But that's not the only reason we can have courage, but also because Christ has ultimate authority. Look at verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not just a little bit of authority. Not just some authority. Not just in heaven. Not just when I'm on the earth. But all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. It's all mine. That nation that has risen up, I control it. I am over it. Your life, the little bits of your life that you think are inconsequential, I have authority over that too. All authority. And so why would we fear? The king of the universe who calls us his brothers and sisters is in complete control over the entire world. And so we can have courage. But finally, we can have courage because of his presence. Look at verse 20. The very last thing he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. By the presence of his spirit, we have the presence of the defeater of death and the king over the universe with us. His presence goes with us. Friends, that changes how we live. Right? I mean, we, I, I could describe story after story of martyr going to their death, right? Polycarp, not going in fear, but going to his death singing with courage. Or Bonhoeffer standing before the Nazis and saying before he died, this is the end, for me the beginning of life. Right? We could just tell story after story of Christians and God's people going to their death with courage and not fear, but we don't need heroic occasions like that to see courage. We've seen it in the 90-year-old saint who when death is confronting them, looks upon it with great courage and hope because they know that even though death is coming, death cannot separate them from the love of God. They can look at death in the face and have great courage. And it's not just death, but it's in every circumstance of life. We need not fear tomorrow. 
for the king of the universe goes with us. We need not fear that that, uh, persecution that someone might bring, that that disdain that they might have for us, because the king of the universe calls us his brother and sister. We need not fear. We can have courage. Nothing can separate us from God. I mean, that's what Romans 8 tells us, that we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate us. It changes what we know about life. See, we live with courage as God's people. But his resurrection also means that we live with joy. You see, it changes the women. Their mournings turn to rejoicing. Their grief is replaced with joy. They run to find their Savior full of great joy. That's what the passage said, said with fear, but great joy. The emotion of joy is greater than even the lingering bits of fear. And when they find him, what do they do? They worship him just as the disciples do. Now think about how this is contrasted with the religious leaders. So verses 11 through 15 give us the account of how the religious leaders responded and how they, how they responded to the word from the soldiers that the tomb was now empty. I mean, how would they respond? How would you expect them to? How would you have responded that morning? Today, how will you respond? What did they say? Keep quiet. Here's a little bit of money. Don't, don't say anything. Don't let anyone know. You notice that they didn't deny the viability of the resurrection? It, they didn't say, you guys are crazy. Dead people don't rise again. They actually believe it. Right? They have a cognitive understanding that this is historically and factually true. They believe that this is a possibility. And so what do they say? They, de- they don't produce a body because they can't. That's another reason why we can point to the historical reality of the resurrection. They don't produce a body. They don't say, you're crazy. They say, keep it quiet. And if the governor finds out, don't worry, we'll smooth it over. Now think about that. They believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And yet it did not change them. They understood with their heads. And so what's the difference between the leaders and the disciples? Well, it's not cognitive awareness. It's actual heart change. You see, the resurrection causes the disciples to rejoice and to praise and to worship because their hearts are made new. Because their hearts have been changed. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You confess with your mouth, you believe with your heart, and you will be changed from dead to alive. That is the difference. It's not how much knowledge we have. It's the heart change that is created by this new resurrected power. It is the working of God in us to turn us from dead men to alive. It is God at work in us to change the posture of our life. That's what happens. Fear no longer rules you. 
courage and joy fill your soul, dependence and submission to Christ. That is the posture of our lives. That is what heart change looks like. And that's what happened to the disciples. I mean, think about how they changed. Moments ago, they are cowering at the sight of guards, and a few days later, they will go out rejoicing because they have had the privilege of being persecuted for their faith. They've changed. You see, friends, the death and historical and bodily resurrection of Christ, it changed them and it changes us. It changes us because by his death, what we know about death radically changes. He is the defeater of death. It causes us to have courage instead of fear. It causes us to have joy instead of mourning. It takes those who were dead and makes them alive. Friends, that is the resurrection. That is our hope this morning. The tomb is empty. And so do not leave here just acknowledging it with your minds. Do not leave here just saying it with your lips. But, but ask God this morning, today, that you would believe it with your hearts and that we would go out of this place, changed people, trusting and resting in Christ's resurrection. He's risen. Hallelujah. Father, we do thank you that you have made a new way of living, that you have turned what was dead and you have given it life. We praise you and worship you that the tomb is empty, that the death and hell and the grave, it could not contain you, Lord Jesus. That its power is nothing in comparison to the power of resurrection. And so we praise you. And we ask that we would live as resurrected people, full of courage and full of joy, going out from this place, praising and worshiping our risen Savior. And we pray this in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen. Amen.